to the extent that is the American Bar Association Business Law Section's podcast series. Our podcasts provide general information. They aren't a substitute for legal advice from a licensed professional. We offer both standalone and serial podcasts on a variety of topics and welcome your feedback and suggestions at ababusinesslaw.americanbar.org. We hope you enjoy your selection. Hello, and thanks for tuning in to the third episode of this podcast series on unusual litigations. I'm Stuart Rebeck. I'm the chair of the Business and Corporate Litigation Committee. This series of podcasts looks at disputes that don't necessarily look like what most business lawyers think of when they think of business litigation, where you have claims in a regular state or federal court. The claims are written out in a complaint. Typically, they seek damages or a declaratory judgment or an injunction. In this episode, we'll be looking at disputes in the world of sports, and there are all sorts of different forums, different procedures, and different kinds of issues that attorneys have to think about when they're handling sports-related disputes. We have here today two people who live in this world all the time and can give us some unique insights into how it works. First, Nick Sanchez. Nick is at the law firm Theodore Oringer in Costa Mesa, California. He is an NFL Players Association certified contract advisor, and he represents NFL players in connection with playing with playing contract negotiations, marketing and endorsement contracts, as well as civil and criminal matters. Nick is a vice chair of BCLC's Sports-Related Disputes Subcommittee and an incoming vice chair of the Sports Law Committee. We also have with us Mark Humanick, who is with Polk Cabot, also in Orange County, California. Mark formerly was VP and General Counsel of the Sports Agency Athletes First, and he is a certified contract advisor, certified by the Players Associations of both the NFL and Major League Baseball. Gentlemen, thank you for appearing. Let's talk a bit about the world of athletes, teams, leagues, collegiate sports, and endorsements. Most people who follow at least the big four professional leagues, baseball, football, basketball, hockey, know that owners and players have a collective bargaining agreement. What effect does that have on where and how disputes get decided? I'll take this one, Nick. Um, So uh, obviously when there's a collective bargaining agreement uh, covering the four major sports, uh, they all have exclusive grievance procedures uh, in those collective bargaining agreements. So the first issue you're going to face when you're representing an athlete, uh, for example, is, you know, what is the basis of your claim? Does it arise out of the collective bargaining agreement? And if it does, then you're going to find yourself not in a court of law, but rather subject to the exclusive arbitration procedures and the in-house arbitrators that the union and the league have agreed to um, on your behalf. And that's true even if the athlete has his own individual contract with his team, right? That is correct. Uh, Because the individual contract, while you may have an agent who negotiates it on your behalf with the team, the agent is actually an agent of the union as well. So the agent is actually licensed by the union um, and uh, therefore uh, you're subject to the arbitration grievance procedure that the union has if your claim stems from the contract. Yeah, this is this is Nick. Um, 
and Mark can correct me if I'm wrong, but in, in instances where you have uh, disputes between player and agent, those are also governed by certain procedures and rules um, and not necessarily raised in what you traditionally expect in a, in a state or federal court, as well as disputes between the agents themselves. So what do these uh, collective bargaining agreement procedures look like and what's good about them and what's bad about them? So, um, you know, just to start off with is that, um, you know, I guess the, the good part of it is that, you know, it's a normally an informal procedure uh, that you can avail yourself of, um, you know, for the individual union members, oftentimes you can, um, get the unions to join with the player uh, in bringing the grievance. Um, you know, that's the very nature of labor uh, arbitration grievances. Um, so that's some of the, the positives. Uh, some of the negatives are you're stuck with that <laughs> procedure. You don't get the uh, ability to have a jury uh you know, evaluate your claims. If you have a, a good claim, um, that can obviously restrict you. And then the other part is, is oftentimes the, the, the time requirements for bringing grievances are much shorter, tighter windows than you normally find in a court of law. You, you don't get, you know, a two-year statute of limitations to bring a grievance uh, under most of the major collective bargaining agreements. In fact, you know, for example, in the NFL, if if a player is cut while injured, um, you know, you have a very short window, normally only 45 days to bring your grievance and have it filed. And oftentimes you may not have a fully developed factual record in order to uh, to really flesh out your claim. So that that can hamstring you at, at times as well. This is Nick Stewart. The the you know one of the other benefits, uh, depending on who you represent, might be the confidential nature of the claim as well, um, as it's held within the confines of uh, the, the sports collective bargaining agreement, um, and that can be a real advantage uh, when you're when you're hoping to keep the matter private and confidential. Um, as a as a trial lawyer and litigator, and I think Mark probably feels the same way when you're representing a a plaintiff or an athlete with the grievance here, not having the ability to present your case to a jury as you would um, in uh, in more regular normal circumstances in state or federal court is a real drawback. Um, you often have um, what we at least perceive to be a very sympathetic uh, claimant and the inability to present that to a jury is is certainly a drawback and the, the other side of that coin is the arbitrators you're generally proceeding in front of, um, there's a tendency to believe that they are handpicked uh, and that the, the case is, is somewhat stacked against you going into it. And you're probably never going to get full justice like you might get with a, uh, a jury, uh, but rather more of a split the baby approach, if you will, um, in that uh, in that arbitration, that's kind of the best you can hope for. So, what sort of opportunities do you have, or ability do you have, to 
get out of litigating in the forum that's specified in the collective bargaining agreement and to try to get out into either a different kind of an arbitration or into state or federal court. So this is uh, you know something I have experience with with a, with a couple of athletes where you try to, first of all, look at what potential claims you have and against what additional defendants besides the team or league. Uh, you know, so that's, you know, the, the starting point um, is you want to then try to craft your claim as not arising out of the collective bargaining agreement or one which requires interpretation of the collective bargaining agreement, uh, but rather one which exists independent of uh, the CBA. And I'll, I'll use an example of a, a football player uh, we represented um, who suffered uh, a really bad knee injury um, playing football uh, in the NFL. Uh, and normally that type of injury grievance would be subject to um, the, the CBA provisions. And his remedy would be limited to, you know, his missed salary in the season of injury only. Well, this was a, an injury that ended uh, his career because after he suffered it, uh, while rehabbing, he uh, came down with a staph infection. Um, and so our challenge was to craft a, uh, a cause of action that didn't require interpretation of the CBA. Um, and our position was is that he contracted the infection while rehabbing and under the CBA, you could rehab your injury from your injury wherever you wanted. You didn't have to do it at the club facility. He happened to rehab at the club facility, which is where we think uh, he contracted the infection. Um, so we brought that claim in state court and were able to effectively um, keep it outside of the CBA grievance procedure. Uh, and it was that, litigation uh you know that was successful for our player and then uh, for another player uh shortly thereafter and that actually formed the basis of the concussion litigation that you may have uh, been following involving the nfl where the claims allege when you bring a fraud claim you know an intentional concealment type claim you have a much more colorable argument that that type of conduct doesn't arise from a breach of contract or uh, arise under the CBA, uh, but is more uh, uh, more like a traditional tort that doesn't arise from it. And that's how, um, you know, they laid the groundwork for that case. Now, they settled it uh, with the NFL before that issue was ever resolved as to whether this belongs in a grievance arbitration or whether it can you know, uh, be maintained as a class, uh, 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 a huge class action in, in federal court. You know, Stuart, just to, to tack on to the end of that, um, you know, the, the, the argument and the determination as to whether or not a dispute will stay within the confines of a collective bar bargaining protocol or uh, flow outside into a federal or state court is a huge leverage piece for both sides, really. Um, and that's why you often see these cases 
decided or settled um, before you hit that that uh, that tipping point there, whether it's the Colin Kaepernick case um, or the concussion settlement, um, you can imagine that once the the league or the teams are outside, if you're defending these claims uh, outside of these procedures, now the floodgates of discovery, publicity, and so many other things come into play. They really want to be careful about pressing that issue, and uh, the same goes. Uh, for the other side, if they if they lose that issue, um, their leverage is greatly diminished. So you often see these cases settle right up against a decision as to whether or not it's going to remain under the collective bargaining procedures or fall outside of it. Okay. Yeah. Well, I just wanted to add one more thing. I, I, I referenced it, um, is this also this notion of finding another defendant who cannot avail themselves of the CBA. So, you know, you can uh, occasionally find, you know, it's not just the club that may may have been negligent, but it may have been uh, a physician who is an independent contractor of the club and not actually a club employee. Uh, And that gives you another uh, line of argument as to why that defendant can't avail themselves of the uh, arbitration provision in the CBA. Okay, how about disputes within leagues, either between owners or between an owner in the league? How are those usually handled? So that's normally going to be handled in-house. Um, the, 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 the league and the owners are, are very strict about uh, wanting to keep league business uh, you know, away from the media as, as, as best as they can. So um, oftentimes you'll see in the, the, the league's constitution and bylaws, you know, for these individual clubs, um, they will, you know, agree to our, you know, binding arbitration or bring it subject totally to the commissioner, you know, where the commissioner has final say as to uh, disputes either between the clubs or, you know, between the club and the league. Okay, how different is the lay of the land for collegiate athletics? How is the jurisdiction for those disputes different or the same? Stuart, this is Nick. There's, you know, it brings, when when you're talking about a college student athlete, it brings uh, a host of other issues to the table. Uh, Some of them, of course, amateurism. Um, So what what the student athlete has available from the school, or other sources is could easily be scrutinized on that level um, as well. Um, there's this additional layer, of course, of the NC2A, which might uh, be weighing in or have jurisdiction over certain eligibility rules and things of that nature, um, like you would with the professional athlete. Um, the the claims could involved uh, could involve criminal or or civil. Uh, allegations, um, but then what is particularly particularly unique in the college student athlete situation is the the student conduct <clears throat> or policies that the particular institution um, may have in place that governs really what's going to happen most immediately with that student athlete. Um, as far as if it's a if it's a conduct issue, are they going to be able to even stay on campus, practice with the team? Are they going to be expelled? 
And that jurisdiction or that forum uh, is entirely unique or can be entirely unique to that, excuse me, institution. And it may not and often does not have all the trappings and protections of, you know, over 100 years of of constitutional uh, review and scrutiny that the regular procedures in a state or federal court might have. Um, So, you know, it really does present a, a bit of a challenge because the the practitioner attorney that's handling issues for college student athletes may have to wear a, a criminal uh, defense hat, a civil litigation hat. Uh, it's going to have to be the practitioner is going to have to be familiar with the NC2A rules and really dive into the particular institution's student conduct uh, policy and procedures uh, where you might not even be entitled to a hearing. Uh, they might make decisions uh, based on different standards of proof, and uh, you're going to have to be aware of all those things um, when when representing those student-athletes. Hey, I, I think it's fair to say that many of the matters you handle can become or actually do become high-profile matters. What sorts of complications does that add to the job of representing your client? Well, from the get-go, you're always concerned about the, uh, the, the court of public opinion, um, so to speak. Uh, and when you have, you know, whether it's a high-profile pro- athlete, a high-profile coach, um, you know, whether it's professional, college, um, or whatnot, oftentimes the controversy is being, uh, is developing long before a complaint, you know, litigation is filed or, or but you have to spring into action and control the narrative before it gets out of hand. Um, and that's complicated by, you know, the, the myriad of factors that could go into so- someone's current earning capacity and future earning capacity as well. And you're, you know, you have to look at, are they a potential defendant, either criminally or civilly? And, you know, as lawyers, we're always really cautious of having your client get out in front of something before you may know all the facts or have, you know, have any time to adequately investigate the facts. Yet you have to balance that with, but if I wait too long and I'm too silent, then the court of public opinion is going to be out there and uh, already have adjudged, you know, uh, your client. Um, you know, or they suffer the reputational damage that is hard to unwind because people remember the initial story. They oftentimes don't remember how the story ended up at the end of the day. Are there other professionals you can use to help you control the process? Absolutely. Um, and, And, you know, there's no one size fits all. But there are a number of crisis management professionals out there um, that you can utilize, um, especially um, if you're going to be the attorney that's going to actually be litigating uh, the case, whether you know, you're defending or uh, prosecuting the case, you may not want to be the voice that's in the media, uh, but you do want your story out there. And whether you use a PR firm or a crisis management firm, there are a number of 
um, alternatives out there so that you can get the uh, message you want and have the right person speaking it. Um, and, and sometimes that does require, you know, having your client, you know, whether it's to issue a denial or to take a, a statement. Um, and, and we see it all the time. I mean, just recently with, um, you know, this is a, just a, a PR issue with Drew Brees when he came out uh, about, uh, you know, standing for the anthem. And that quickly spun and he needed to get that PR piece under control and he was able to do so. Um, but that's how quickly things can move um, in our field. Right. And, and Stuart, this is Nick. The, the other, another piece to it is that m- many of these professional athletes uh, have relationships, marketing and endorsement relationships and those contracts nowadays uh, usually have some sort of uh, morality clause in them, whereby the the advertiser uh, who's paying the money to the athlete uh, can can uh, void or terminate the contract based on some sort of scandal with the athlete. Now that doesn't mean that you know it's two years down the li- line and you've been. Uh, pronounced guilty or not guilty or or liable in a situation, they can make that determination much sooner if they think it's it's going to negatively affect their brand. So having to deal with those PR issues right out of the chute, um, which generally is something uncomfortable, especially in a criminal uh, investigation, is something that the athlete needs to be mindful. We're talking potentially millions and millions of dollars there. And then it even trickles down to some extent to the collegiate level. Um, while these players are not necessarily making endorsement money um, uh, yet, they're building their brand. And you know, if there's a if there's an issue involving you know a Mississippi State quarterback who's going to start next year in his in the SEC, we're going to hear about it on national television about a 21-year-old kid and some misconduct issue. You know, somebody in that same jurisdiction could be handling a very high-profile business case or criminal case that nobody in the country would ever know about. But what's at stake for that young 20-something kid is his brand and, and his future uh, ability to uh, obtain and maintain endorsements. So the, the PR piece is really unique. Uh, in these cases when you're, when you're considering the student athletes or the professional athletes. Okay, and that lets us segue to the subject of endorsements. Uh, how much regulation does each sport place on player endorsements? Uh, does a league or team have any say about how athletes can use their rights of publicity? And does the forum for handling the dispute depend on who is involved? So yeah, there there are um, you know and again it, it depends on the league involved, um, and and normally there is a what's called a group licensing um, arrangement that the union will negotiate with teams, um, where when you use, uh, for instance, four or more players uh, in a video game in, in any certain uh, advertising campaign, that initial negotiation actually has to be handled between the league and normally the union. Uh, Virtually every union, though, will carve out 
an individual athlete's right to negotiate and and capitalize on their own name, name, image, and likeness. You know, take Michael Jordan, for example. Um, he obviously was able to do a shoe deal with Nike that turned out very profitable for him in the long run. Um, at the same time, each league also is able to limit um, the types of products you may or may not be able to endorse. Again, uh, example throughout the leagues is, you know, you don't see current playing athletes endorsing gambling, alcohol, you know, sex-related items, uh, anything that could potentially tarnish the brand of, of the league or the team. Um, so there are those kind of rules and regulations, um, you know, that the, the union and the leagues agree to um, that the individual athlete has to navigate uh, on their own, uh, you know, understanding those parameters. And then with respect to the, the athlete and the advertiser directly, those uh, individual contracts are generally governed by um, the terms of that particularly or particular marketing agreement. So that's where you might find, or that's where you would find these uh, morality clauses and uh, potential arbitration agreements uh, or jurisdiction, jurisdiction and venue uh, provisions that uh, direct the parties as to where they'll handle their disputes. Okay. And it looks like that's all we have time for right now. Uh, thanks, Nick. Thanks, Mark, for sharing your thoughts with us. That's it for episode three of this series. The next episode will cover bankruptcy litigation, which right now is a pretty timely topic. Keep your eyes on the Business Law Section's website for that next and final installment in the series. If you found this discussion of sports disputes interesting, Feel free to get hold of Nick or me to talk about joining the Sports-Related Dispute Subcommittee. Also, that subcommittee will be meeting at the Business Law Section Virtual Annual Meeting in September together with the Sports Law Committee. A time hasn't been assigned yet, but I encourage you to check the schedule and attend the meeting if these issues interest you. Thanks, Nick. Thanks, Mark. That's it. Goodbye for now. Thank you for listening to the ABA Business Law Section's podcast series, To the Extent That... The section offers a robust collection of content. To explore more about this topic or to learn about joining the section, visit ambar.org bizlaw. That's B-I-Z-L-A-W.